Good morning, and welcome to another Talking Birds radio show. We're on our way to the Galapagos Islands, and we plan to broadcast our show from there next week. Meanwhile, we hope you enjoy the following encore installment of Talking Birds. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com by L.L. Bean, inspiring you to get outdoors. LLBean.com by Celestron, offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels. Celestron.com by Birds and Beans shade-grown bird-friendly coffee. Birdsandbeans.com and by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com Good morning. Welcome to our show number 634. Birds Japanese amazing are tits, willow. Huh? I know it sounds like something our friend Yoda from Star Wars might say, but it's just really a demonstration of the fact that these Japanese birds, close relatives of our chickadees, apparently can figure out the meaning of what we might call sentences, sort of like the way humans do. Research reported this week in the journal Current Biology says that when a predator threatens the flock, for example... Japanese tits produce a mobbing call with the sequence A, B, C, D. When researchers played a recording of that sequence, the birds reacted immediately. But when they reversed the sequence, the birds did not react at all. That suggests the scientists say that they get the meaning only if the sequence is in the correct order, kind of like humans, but not like Yoda. There's more to the story, and you can read the whole thing on our Talking Birds Facebook page. Birds in the News music there. Very loud music. As reported by the American Bird Conservancy, an international team of researchers has solved one of South America's great avian mysteries by rediscovering a small brown bird that had not been seen since the 1950s. The Tachira antpitta. Listed as critically endangered and thought maybe to have uh, gone extinct. Antpittas are reclusive birds that are Easier heard than seen, but with no sound recordings, no one on the team knew what to listen for. They did know where to look for it, though, and they eventually picked up the distinctive sound of an ant pitta that they had never heard before, deep in the mountainous forests of western Venezuela, and they were able to identify the bird from previous descriptions. Similar habitat can be found in nearby Colombia, and scientists think the species might also occur there. They're now working to determine the bird's full range and habitat requirements and how best to ensure the continued survival of the recently discovered Tachira antpitta. Extra, extra, read all about it. Here are some of the stories and videos we have for you on our Facebook page this week. Our Debbie Bleacher visited a magical place called Tanglewood on Thursday, and she produced a Facebook Live presentation about birds and music with ornithologist Wayne Peterson and pianist Pierre-Laurent Amar. And you can see their fascinating onstage chat right now on our Facebook page. Want to see a really striking photo of a pair of roseate terns? Check out the one by our friend Craig Gibson that's appearing on our page right now. And we share an American Bird Conservancy post about legislation that would go a long way toward getting some dangerous pesticides out of our ecosystem. 
That's some of what we have for you on our Facebook page right now. That is the sound of our mystery bird, and this is a preview of our mystery bird contest coming along a little later in the show. We'll have a beautiful prize of a Droll Yankees feeder and a bonus prize today of a big bag of bird-friendly birds and beans. Delicious shade-grown coffee. Here's a couple of clues. Our mystery bird is a medium-sized shorebird with fairly long legs, a fairly long neck, a medium-sized bill, a brown back, and a chest and belly clearly marked with dark round spots. Our bird, which breeds over most of the U.S. and Canada and winters along the Gulf Coast and points south, constantly bobs its tail and rear end as it walks and probes for insects and crustaceans along the edges of ponds, lakes, and streams. That's a preview of our mystery bird contest. We'll be activating the contest in a few minutes here. Meanwhile, we'd like to say a big hello and an even bigger thank you to our newest Talking Birds ambassadors, including Cameron Russell from Millville, Massachusetts, who says, I'm a 20-year-old college student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I'm very passionate about birds and have spent the past few years conducting research on yellow-rumped warblers and nightingale bioacoustic frequencies. In addition to conducting research at my university, I've also enjoyed working for Mass Audubon as a birding field guide. Worked this past summer for the Rhode Island Department of Environment Management, surveying breeding bird populations throughout the state, and I'm also interning for the Southwick Zoo Avian Behavior and Training Department. Whew. And he says, I've just recently discovered your podcast, but I'm already well on track to listening to them all by the end of summer. Thank you for all the pleasure and knowledge you have brought to me and your listeners. Well, thank you, Cameron, and good luck listening to all those podcasts. There are about 634 of them, not counting this one. And thanks to Ashley Cruz from Oakland, California, who says, I'm a landscape architect and a steward of the land and always try to weave bird-friendly habitats into all of my designs. I love birding and sharing everything I know about birds with others Thanks. Well, thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much for becoming a Talking Birds ambassador. Talking Birds listeners, please consider joining Ashley and Cameron in our Talking Birds ambassadors program and hand out some of our info cards to your friends and associates to spread the word about our show and about birds and conservation. It's easy to do and easy to sign up for. Just click on the contact button at TalkingBirds.com and choose the Become an Ambassador option. That's the contact button at TalkingBirds.com. Choose the ambassador option. By the way, we're still looking for first ambassadors in the following states. Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, New Mexico, Mississippi, South Carolina, Delaware, and we're a little embarrassed about this because it's a state practically in our Massachusetts home-based backyard. It's the only state in the entire northeast quadrant of the U.S., that is not yet represented by at least one Talking Birds ambassador. In which state is it? Well, it's the one where you'll find... Nights full of stars, hearts full of joy. Paradise for a girl and a boy. I guess it suits me to a T. What is it? Connecticut is the place for me to be. Connecticut always will be my home. Uh, we love Connecticut. We love our Connecticut listeners. 
And if you're one of them, please become a Talking Birds ambassador representing your great state, and we'll love you even more than we do now. And that's a lot. Still to come on our show today, why do Cape May warblers refuse to go to Western Canada, even though it offers ideal habitat and lots of food? We'll try to find out when we speak to Cornell Lab of Ornithology postdoc researcher Dr. David Taves. Plus, we'll catch up with our man Mike O'Connor in our Let's Ask Mike segment, talking about Mike's foolproof solution for ridding your feeders of those pesky house sparrows and ridding your awnings and other places where they might be trying to build nests. And up next, a duck dude that sounds like an Evan Rude is today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend presented by Birdwatching Magazine. For more than a quarter century, Birdwatching has been North America's premier magazine about wild birds and birding. Hey, Frankie, that sounds like an outboard motor trying to start up. But there's no boats here. It's not a motor. Well, what is it, Frankie? It's a duck. <laughs> huh? It's a duck. <laughs> it's not a duck, Frankie. Yeah, it's a duck. It's not a duck. It's a duck. It's not well, a Frankie's duck. right. Yeah, it is a duck. a duck. A small not duck, duck, not much bigger than a buffalo head, that looks almost as odd as it sounds. The male, in breeding plumage, sports a cinnamon red body, bright blue bill, big white cheek patches, and a long tail that often sticks straight up like a wren's does, making the bird look as though somebody attached a paintbrush or, or maybe an outboard motor to its hind end. The ruddy duck's name in Spanish, Pato Zambullador, tells us that it's a diving duck. It breeds across western North America from Canada to Mexico and winters along both U.S. coasts and scattered spots in the Midwest, sticking mostly to fresh water. Crank it up, Mr. Ruddy Duck. Producing two webfoot pounds of torque, it's the Ruddy Duck, today's featured feathered friend here on Talking Birds. Thanks again for being with us here on our show number 635. Please do visit our website, TalkinBirds.com. No G in Talkin'. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Talkin' Birds. If you take a look at the range maps in your field guide, you'll see where bird species spend their summers and winters. But why do they go where they do? And what limits their ability to travel certain distances? There's a pretty long list of theories about this. And recently, Dr. David Taves a postdoctoral associate at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology added a new idea to the list. And he's on the phone with us right now to tell us about it. Good morning, Dave. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Thanks for being with us. So what's the new idea, Dave? Well, the idea is that um, a lot of species, um, well, we were studying warblers in this case, mm -hmm. have a kind of a range limit um, in sort of the northern latitudes of Canada. And we kind of wondered why they didn't breed much further to the north and west, so into Alaska and the Yukon. Hmm. Um, and it's a range limit we don't really see in a lot of resident species that live in the boreal forest. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that it's, you know, it's difficult to get that far into the north you have a really far southeastern 
wintering range, mm-hmm. um, and you run into a lot of obstacles like the Rocky Mountains, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we think that the, the constraints of a long migration are limiting the ability for a number of species to expand into the north. And, and again, particularly dealing with warblers, right? Various warbler species. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of our um, warblers in North America are neotropical migrants. And so they, you know, are pretty small, um, but they also move long distances uh, between where they winter and, and where they breed. And the, um, a lot of them are in the eastern forests that people are familiar with, but also um, throughout the boreal forests in, in Canada. I'm looking at a couple of range maps here on the Cornell Labs All About Birds website. It shows the mm-hmm. breeding and wintering ranges of two warblers, the northern water thrush and the Cape May warbler. And we see something pretty dramatic. The breeding range of the northern water thrush, which winters pretty much all through Central America, the Caribbean, and northern South America, uh, covers much of the northern U.S. and most of Canada from Labrador past the western border and then all through Alaska. But the Cape May warbler, coming mostly, I think, from Central America and the Caribbean, never makes it farther west than Alberta in Canada. So I think that kind of fits your theory that this bird maybe just can't make it farther west and north. Even though there's good territory there, um, they can't do it within the time frame in which they have to travel. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. And that's what we kind of set out to, or that I I set out to test was the idea, you know, is there suitable habitat, um, presumably suitable habitat, where these birds are not um, living in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I used to work in in northern British Columbia. You kind of know the roads uh, where you'll find a few Cape May warblers, um, but it seems that the, you know, the habitat they use east is pretty similar to the habitat or the the boreal forest further north. So it was always odd that they weren't you know, living uh, a little bit further, further away. Hmm. So, yeah, the the contrast between the uh, several species that have that range limit, and there's a couple other species that do actually make it all the way, and 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 the northern water thrush is one of them. Hmm. Well, you've looked at other species a little bit, like the black pole warbler, which famously travels something like 1,800 miles between Canada and South America. Uh, you say you don't. No, we don't know why there's such a difference in distance travel uh, uh, ability, but maybe black poles can store and use their sort of fat fuel more efficiently? Yeah, I mean, we we generally think of the black pole warbler as kind of just a super migrator. Um, they, on migration, will sometimes double their body weight in fat reserves. They'll... Um, you know, burn some some of or not all of that fat. Also, some of their muscles and also their organs. So they've mm. they've kind of evolved this suite of adaptations that are associated with this super long, super far migration. So yeah, we we kind of consider them the, the super <laughs> migrators. Although we don't exactly know all of those adaptations that let mm. them let them do that. So that's that's kind of a, a an area of active research for sure. Among the other possible explanations you cite regarding why different species have these different range limits has to do with the bird's ability to cope with temperature extremes. In your article, you say mean temperature across the breeding season was identified as the top environmental predictor in nine of the 13 boreal eastern breeding warblers. 
Uh, so, Dave, we know the temperatures are going up. So, are we seeing any direct effects of temperature ra- uh, rising on migration at this point? Yeah. So, so my study wasn't looking um, at the you know predicted influence of climate change precisely, but other researchers have looked at um, particularly the wintering range. We have a lot of good data from the the um, Christmas bird count, and that's that's shown that a lot of species are sort of moving their ranges northward consistent with climate change. Um, but if we think the sort of constraints of migration are important in these these warblers that actually already have presumably suitable habitat in the north, that might actually make them um, a little bit um, more vulnerable to any effects of, of, of you know, temperature moving beyond what what they can tolerate. Mm-hmm. By the way, we can uh, give credit to a lot of citizen scientists, right, who provided much of the data for your study. Yeah, I mean, we the the analysis I used is um, called niche modeling, but basically, it just takes in tens of thousands of points. And if I had, you know, a ten thousand page manuscript, I would love to thank all the volunteers <laughs> that use eBird to that you know put that observation, to put those observations mm-hmm. in because we use them. Uh, regularly for these kinds of analyses, and it's just great to have that resource available. Mm-hmm. Dr. David Taves is a postdoctoral associate at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and he spoke to us about his research on the constraints of migration and New World warblers, which appeared in a recent edition of the Journal of Avian Biology. Fascinating research, Dave, and thanks for telling us about it. Yeah, so great to be with you. Thank you for having me on. Coming up next here on Talking Birds, it's our mystery bird contest in just one minute. Hi, it's Ray saying don't look now, but it's late July. That means in just about eight weeks, we'll be going on an unforgettable journey to the Galapagos Islands, a place unlike any other place on Earth and known for vast numbers of creatures found nowhere else on the planet, including the finches studied by Charles Darwin that sparked his theory of evolution by natural selection. We'll travel with Sunrise Birding, widely recognized as one of the finest small group touring companies in the world. I'll be your host, joined by expert local guides who will lead us to and teach us about blue-footed boobies, Galapagos tortoises, marine iguanas, and many other species, including the Galapagos penguins, with which we'll snorkel. But don't wait until it's too late. Find out all about this amazing trip right now by visiting sunrisebirding.com. That's sunrisebirding.com. Hope to see you in September in the Galapagos Islands. If we continue to consume our natural resources at the rate we do now, by 2050, it could take three Earths to meet our needs. The Earth can't speak up when it needs help, but we can. Be the voice for those who have no voice. Visit worldwildlife.org. Hey, remember when you were in school, the teacher never said when giving a quiz, you don't necessarily have to get the right answer. Well, our mystery bird contest is different. You could win without necessarily getting the right answer if no one gets the right answer, because we'll do a drawing to determine our winner. So that's the thing. Here's our number, 781-837-4900. We have two beautiful prizes uh, today. First, the Droll Yankees Cute Feeder, the cutest little chickadee feeder for any type of food. It even has a height-adjustable dome and a dish for sunflower seed, mixed seed, fruit, or mealworms, whatever you'll want to put in there, they'll certainly appreciate it. And you'll appreciate this if you drink coffee or know somebody who does. Our bonus prize, it's a 12-ounce bag of delicious bird-friendly birds and beans coffee. 
So a couple of beautiful prizes. Again, our number is 781-837-4900. Here's the sound of our mystery bird. Our mystery bird is a medium-sized shorebird with fairly long legs, a fairly long neck, a medium-sized bill, a brown back and chest and belly clearly marked with dark round spots. Our bird, which breeds over most of the U.S. and Canada and winters along the Gulf Coast and points south, constantly bobs its tail and rear end as it walks and probes for insects and crustaceans along the edges of ponds and lakes and streams. I think there's some pretty good clues there. You're listening to an encore edition of Talkin' Birds. We'll be back with an all-new show live from the Galapagos Islands next week. Take your guess on our mystery bird contest. Meanwhile, we're going to go down to beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts, talk to Mike O'Connor in our Let's Ask Mike Live segment in just one minute. Now, a word from our friends at Birdwatching Magazine. For over a quarter century, Birdwatching Magazine has been North America's premier magazine about wild birds and birding. Whether you enjoy birds in your own backyard or far afield, you'll find information in every issue to help you find, attract, identify, and understand birds. Regular contributors include Ken Kaufman, David Sibley, Pete Dunn, Laura Erickson, and other birding experts. Learn more at birdwatchingdaily.com. Maria Inez Phillips talks about not recycling. I've got too many newspapers and magazines and catalogs in there with plastic containers and bottles and cans. Your trash can is full of recyclables? No, it's full of trash. You say trash, Maria. I say rubbish. Whatever it is, I'm not going through it. I I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. And now, here he is, ladies and gentlemen, at the Bird Watchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod, looking resplendent in his white lab coat with pocket protector. It's our own Mike O'Connor. Uh, good morning, Mike. You know, I like that image. I, bo- I borrowed your description of yourself there. I hope you don't mind. Uh, That's my new look. That is your look because you are doing some more uh, expansive research on uh, how to dissuade uh, house sparrows from nesting in... In, in your what? Well, people said in, in their awnings, in their roll-up awnings? Well, yeah, that's a little bit of it, but I yeah. don't care because I don't have an awning. So you I don't, don't have any awnings, yeah. But I do care. At feeders, mm. um, I get more complaints about um, sparrows coming to feeders yeah. and dominating it. You know, and, you know, I don't want to be a bird bigot or anything, but they can dominate feeders. Yeah. And so years ago at the University of Nebraska, they came out, they invented something called a magic halo, which was a, basically a wire loop that hung over the feeder with monofilament mm-hmm. fish line hanging from it. Trouble was, I mean, we, we bought a couple of those, a little bit hard to use, and, and they're expensive, and then limited effectiveness, so I did some experimenting with my own, like I took like a squirrel baffle, ordinary squirrel baffle, and hung some fish line, and those worked. Um, I was just concerned that sometimes uh, birds would get tangled in it. It never really happened, but it came close a few times. Mm. So uh, a few weeks ago, I decided to take the, the Mylar scare tape that people put to keep the birds um, like from the, away from their garden. It's this uh, holographic scare tape. You can buy it in any garden shop. And, um, and I put strips of that hanging down instead of the fish line. I figured it would, be less, it would get less tangly. 
It, it worked. The trouble is I kind of used too much, and my whole backyard looked like a disco. There's shiny <laughs> lights everywhere, and it's, it's really, really reflective. It's almost too much. So last week, I, I think I was on the show I mentioned, I, I cut it back to just one strip. And so far, it's working great. It's just I took a squirrel baffle. You can re- use a rain guard or any kind of cover and hang it over your feeder. And I just took one, say, three-foot strip of this scare tape, taped it onto the baffle, and just hung it down. It just blows around in the wind. And so far, the goldfinches, the chickadees, the house sparrows, the tip mice, the um, tripping sparrow, song sparrows, are all using the feeder, mm. but no song sparrows. They come, and they kind of look at it, and they continue on. Mm. Once in a while, wow. one will slide towards the feeder and take off. So, so far, that's been good. Now, it's, you know, it's just infancy. I, I recommend people try that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but don't call me if it doesn't work 100%, but it's working for me right now. So it's one of those things we can try. Yeah. I noticed on cloudy days, it's not as effective. I mean, they, huh. you get once in a while, a bird will, uh, sparrow will come and doesn't stay long, but because but it loses some of its, re- of its reflection. Um, that's the good news. Mm. The bad news is that sparrows eat a lot of bird seeds, so I'm kind of cutting my own throat here by telling people <laughs> <laughs> to use this because I mean, cut into my sails a little bit. It'll be up to the other birds to make up for that. I that's think so. Right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I've got plenty of goldfinches out there right now, and so it's working. So folks want to try that wherever they live. You know, go to the garden shop, get a little bit. of It's very inexpensive. My last scare tape. Hang it down over the feeder, and let me know how it works. All right, give a report on that. There he is, uh, chasing away the house sparrows and shaking his booty down there on Cape Cod. Mike O'Connor at the Bird Watchers General Store. Thank you, Mike. We'll talk to you next week. Bob's movie, right? Yeah. All right, we're going to get back here to our mystery bird contest. We have uh, two prizes. Um, we have the beautiful Droll Yankees cute chickadee feeder and a bonus prize. I should have mentioned you have to answer a bonus question for this, but we're very liberal in terms of whether you get the right answer and how that will all work, so don't worry about that. It's a bag of delicious, bird-friendly birds and beans coffee. Uh, Here's the sound of our mystery bird. A medium-sized shorebird with fairly long legs, a fairly long neck. Medium-sized bill, a brown back, uh, Uh, And uh, chest and belly marked with dark round spots. Our bird, which breeds over most of the U.S. and Canada and winters along the Gulf Coast and points south, constantly bobs its tail and rear end as it walks and probes for insects and crustaceans along the edges of ponds, lakes, and streams. What is it? 781-837-4900. Carolyn is in York, Pennsylvania. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning, Ray. Thanks for calling in from York, uh, which is where I, I should know where that is, but somehow I guess I don't. It's uh, south-central Pennsylvania. South. We're about two hours west of Philadelphia. All right. Well, what do you think, uh, Carolyn, on our, uh, on our mystery bird there? I'm guessing it's the spotted sandpiper. What a guess. What a top-quality guess. People in and around Philly are good at, uh, good at guessing with stuff like this. <laughs> Nice job. The spotted sandpiper. Kind of a really interesting thing is that the female spotted sandpiper is the one who establishes and defends the territory. Arriving, oh, really? Yeah, arriving on breeding grounds earlier than the male. Kind of unusual, but uh, that's what they do, and we're not going to be able to change that, I don't think, or really don't don't want to. Well, that's excellent. You get that beautiful Droll Yankees feeder. Would you like to try our bonus question? Okay, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> okay, which one of the following birds with an eating utensil-related name actually exists? Is it A, the knife-billed nighthawk, 
B. The fork-billed flycatcher. C. The spoon-billed sandpiper. Or D. The spork-billed sparrow. That would be a um, a hybrid. The spork, not a hybrid bird, but a hybrid of a spoon I- and a fork. But anyway, that's uh, that is the. Uh, Selection Boy, that you you have to choose from. There. I've heard of a forked tailed. I haven't Fork, heard of them. Yeah. Haven't heard of a forked billed flycatcher. I have not. No. What no. about a knife billed nighthawk? Well, I've heard of common nighthawk. <laughs> Is there? You think there's a knife billed one? Well, too? I don't know. I think we're, we're we're narrowing it down here, though. Are we? Okay. Yeah. All right. And then there was a spoon billed something. Yeah, that was the spoon billed sandpiper. Boy, I've not heard of that one either. Hmm. I think I think you're stumping me here. <laughs> Can you pick one of those? Maybe like the spoon-billed sandpiper. That that's my favorite. All right, that's we're the one. Spoon-billed sandpiper. Yeah, we'll talk about that bird next week. By the way, because that's a very uh, a bird in a, in big trouble and uh, worth talking about. But for right now, it means that uh, uh, Carolyn will send you that uh, beautiful birds and beans coffee along with that droll Yankees feeder. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carolyn, for calling in. And uh, I guess we're just about out of time for our uh, show this morning. Thanks to Mark Duffield, Debbie Bleacher, and our engineer, Tim McKenney. I'm Ray Brown. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an encore edition of Talking Birds. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with an all-new show, live from the Galapagos Islands, next week. Made possible by the generous support of the Birdwatchers General Store, Orleans Cape Cod, birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By L.L. Bean, inspiring you to get outdoors, llbean.com. By Celestron, offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels, celestron.com. By Birds and Beans Shade-Grown Bird-Friendly Coffee, birdsandbeans.com. And by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com.